Well, happy Independence Day weekend. As you turn your Bible to Galatians chapter 5, we're going to take a break from John this Sunday and look at Galatians chapter 5. Verse 1 gives us the theme of this passage in a nutshell. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you have given us a word that teaches us about what true freedom is. And on this Independence Weekend, we have earthly freedoms that very few peoples in history have ever enjoyed. And we are grateful for those. But we ultimately recognize those freedoms are a pale reflection of the freedom that we have in Jesus from sin's curse. May we behold that freedom today. May it strengthen our faith, hope, and love in the living God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Supreme Court this week on Monday handed down another crucial decision. We had the Dobbs decision reversing Roe versus Wade. Praise God for that. That's right. It's okay to clap for that. Absolutely. And now it's Kennedy versus the Bremerton School District, which was a win for religious liberty. In this case, we have a high school football coach named Joe Kennedy who for the last eight years, at least up to the time he was fired, uh, prayed after the games. And he didn't coerce anybody to pray, but over time, some of his players, some of their parents, and other students from the school joined in prayer. And this happened until the, the school board was informed about it, and they told Coach Kennedy that if he was going to keep his job he had to stop praying in public. Uh, their argument was that if the coach continued to pray in public, it would violate the establishment clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution. In other words, this coach, they said, was acting as a, a school employee, or, and uh, he worked for a public, a government institution, and when he prayed, that even if there was no compulsion behind his prayers, it can confuse students in believing that the government was endorsing his prayers. And so they uh, had to violate, they said, his free speech and free exercise right under the First Amendment. Well, he refused to do that. And he was fired in 2015, but this led to a federal court challenge, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And we learned on Monday that the Supreme Court ruled uh, by a 6-3 to majority to uphold the right of the coach to pray. Uh, that's right. The court made clear that the school district had violated his rights a free exercise of religion and freedom of speech. 
And the court said that the Establishment Clause was never intended to suppress First Amendment rights. In other words, our founding fathers, though dead, still speak. The American experiment is 246 years old tomorrow, which is shocking because I do remember it being 200 years old. <laughs> it's a sign of age. Ironically, on that July 4th, 1776 day, King George III of Great Britain wrote this in his journal. Nothing of importance happened today. But on that same day, another man who had the motto, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God, published a document called the Declaration of Independence. And that document gave formal expression to the belief, the widespread belief, that King George III had ruled American colonies unjustly and that they now must be independent of Great Britain. Now, the Continental Congress had passed uh, a resolution calling for independence two days earlier. In fact, John Adams thought that would be the day that we would remember and celebrate. But on the 4th, July 4th, that glorious 4th, the words of Thomas Jefferson were published before the world as Congress's justification for their action. Uh, David McCullough, the great historian, speaking at Hillsdale College, said this, Keep in mind that when we were founded by those people in the late 18th century, none of them had had any prior experience in either revolutions or nation-making. They were winging it. We see their faces in the old paintings done later in the lives, or their lives, are looking at us from the money in our wallets. And we see the awkward teeth and the powdered hair, and we think of them as elder statesmen. But George Washington, when he took command of the Continental Army in 1775, was 43, and he was the oldest of them. Jefferson was 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. I'm 54. I'm just happy when I write a sermon. <laughs> As you know, the first part of the Declaration of Independence establishes the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this was seen as an act of treason. As Benjamin Rush said, his fellow signers knew they were signing their death warrants. In fact, one of the most famous, if not the most famous speeches of that era was given by Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. And when he gave that speech, the church was packed, the windows were down so that more people could hear that speech, and Jefferson and George Washington were sitting there in awed silence as Henry said these words, many cry peace, peace. But there is no peace. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Now, we know they were inconsistent with that. But he said, forbid it. Almighty God, 
I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And we in the free church tradition are heirs to the sacrifice of our forefathers. So we may indeed enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In fact, the Declaration of Independence officially broke all political ties with Great Britain and set forth the ideas and principles for a fair and just government. And then a decade or so later, the Constitution was written by Thomas Madison where it outlined how this government was to function. And the First Amendment of that Constitution and that was intentional. The First Amendment excludes any law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. And that's why we can sit here today without fear of government intrusion. Now, there are a couple of realities I want us to consider before we get into our passage this morning. First of all, most of our founding fathers were not born-again evangelical Christians. Many of them were deists. But they understood that... We aren't created as image bearers to be under the tyranny of a human government. But the second thing they would have understood, they could not promise following generations that the judges and justices would interpret and apply the Constitution according to their original intention. Nor could our forefathers offer us true and enduring and eternal life and liberty. And not just the pursuit of happiness, but enduring hope and exceeding joy. They could not offer that. They were mere men and sinful men at that. Because the ultimate tyranny stems not from being enslaved by man, but from being enslaved by sin, death, and the devil. To be sure, our founding fathers, through their victory, offer us all the opportunity to worship as we wish. Yet... True victory consists in entering into a victory that can never be reversed. So to take, on, take off on Henry's speech, give me liberty or give me death, true and enduring liberty and freedom comes through death and a resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory can never be taken away. And the first thing we see in our passage is Jesus has secured for us freedom from the triple slavery of sin, death, and the devil. Look with me in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand there firm, firm therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Now, the purpose of Jesus' work is summed up right here in this one verse. Those who believe the gospel, those who trust in Jesus, who redeemed believers from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for them, chapter 3, verse 13, are no longer in slavery to the law and its curse on the disobedient. Indeed, our former state is depicted as a slavery. If you have not yet trusted in Jesus this morning, you are enslaved no matter how free you may feel walking around the United States. You are enslaved. A slavery that's more dangerous than anything a human or a government can do. As John Stott asserts, Jesus is our liberator. Conversion to him is an act of emancipation and the Christian life is a life of freedom. The freedom that we have in Jesus is emancipation from the post-fall slaveholders of sin, death, and the devil. So let's talk about these three slaveholders. First of all, Jesus by his death and his resurrection has freed us from sin and guilt. How did he do that? The wages of sin is death. He received the wage in our place. He died the death that we deserve. He took the judgment of God. Our guilt was imputed to him. So though he, even though he was the spotless lamb of God, who never sinned, who always obeyed the Father, he was treated as if he had committed every sin we would or have ever committed. The judgment fell on him in our place. He died in our place. Indeed, he took our guilt on the cross and he replaced it with his righteousness. His righteousness, which he fulfilled in his obedience to the law, was imputed to everyone who believes. Indeed, mercy was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found true liberty, right? At Calvary. So he freed us from the slavery of sin. Secondly, he freed us from death itself. Now, Scripture speaks of death in three ways. First of all, the most apparent that we see is physical death. No one can deny that. Everyone dies. It's appointed unto man once to die. All of you have been to numerous funerals, and you'll be to more funerals. Physical death is the separation of the body from the soul. That's physical death. Physical death is a consequence of sin. But then there's two other expressions of death. These are the two kinds of death that we can't see, but we believe as believers. Spiritual death. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. We are born into that state. We are sinners by birth, sinners by choice, and our souls naturally are separated from God. The carnal mind is not subject to the, God, uh, the law of God, nor indeed can it be. And God's wrath is on us as we are separated and alienated from him. That's spiritual death. 
A third expression of this death is eternal death. Eternal death is the separation of both the soul and the body from God for all eternity. The Bible describes that as hell. And as hard as that is for you perhaps to conceive of an eternal hell, the Bible teaches that there is an eternal suffering called hell. That's eternal death. And Jesus Christ has set us free from all three expressions of death. The latter two that we cannot see, spiritual death and eternal death, that we, that we take by faith are already defeated for the believer. And the part that we can see, physical death, has been defeated in principle. But one day it will be defeated in the consummation where it will no longer rear its ugly head. He has set us free from death. Isn't that a glorious freedom? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. A third type of freedom that he has set us free, he has set us free from the devil. And who is the ruler of this world? Now, how does he set us free from the devil? It's simple. The devil's throne is the ground of his dominion. The strength of his dominion is found in our guilt. He is the accuser of the brethren. And take away the guilt, and his throne is undermined. So sin, death, and the devil, in Jesus we have freedom from this triple slavery. In other words, in Jesus we have freedom from the curse of the law. That is, the law that we break when we sin. That Satan employs against us as our accuser and that sentences us to death. But I want you to note the tension. We have that freedom as believers, but notice in verse 2. It's very important verb there. Um, we see here that we are to stand in that. But notice in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you. That if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So, Paul is addressing a group known as the Judaizers. And the Judaizers taught that salvation is by grace alone in Christ, but you also must become a Jew by being circumcised. Now, you don't meet many Judaizers today, but you certainly meet those who believe that salvation in Jesus is not sufficient, that we must add something to uh, that equation. And so they might say that uh, salvation is found in Jesus, but you also must keep all the sacraments. And some traditions even have up to seven sacraments. Some will say, some traditions say that you have to be baptized by water. And until you're baptized by water, uh, you cannot be saved. That's a modern version of this circumcision. Uh, the false teachers were saying that, that in order to be a Christian, you had to be circumcised. Now, this might seem trivial. After all, it's only a minor uh, surgical procedure. Of course, you know what minor surgery is when someone else has that surgery. Um, but the doctrinal implications for what they were saying were eternally impacting. 
In fact, uh, these false teachers did not see circumcision merely as a physical operation. It was a symbol that represented salvation by obedience to the law. Okay? But lest we relegate this to the past, again, getting circumcised is just one alternative for works-based religion. Uh, Circumcision represents religion of human achievement. And Jesus and his cross represents a religion of divine accomplishment, of what God has achieved supremely and definitively for us in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is only for sinners. That's who Jesus is for. You know, this year, it's hard to believe this, but on October 31st, we celebrate the 505th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation that was spearheaded by Martin Luther. And Galatians was his most important text when he preached uh, and led that Reformation. And in Galatians, he gets at the heart of it when he says this. And I think this is something for all of us to remember. Uh, Even for those of you who are Christians who struggle with assurance of salvation, that's a very real issue that real Christians struggle with. Many Christians struggle singing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. But here's what Luther said. I think you'll find this comforting. Maybe some of you might find it convicting. God accepts only the forsaken, cures only the sick, gives sight only to the blind, sanctifies only the sinners, gives wisdom only to the unwise fools, In short, he has mercy only on those who are wretched and gives grace only to those who are not in grace. Therefore, no proud, no wise or just person can become God's material and God's purpose cannot be fulfilled in him. He remains in his own work and makes a fictitious, pretended, false, and painted saint of himself. That is a hypocrite. Luther is saying that the gospel is only for sinners, not those who believe they can actually obey God and climb the ladder to his acceptance and favor. A few years ago, I was told about a a young girl who had tried to commit suicide. She wasn't in our church, but she knew a church member. And so I went to the hospital. I didn't know her. And she was in uh, this particular ward. And I asked the nurse if I could see her. And I said, she doesn't know that I'm coming, but I'm a pastor. She went back and got permission. I walked into this girl's room, and and she was a beautiful girl, early 20s, and her her arm was bandaged really, really thick, and she had tried to kill herself. And uh, the first thing she said to me when I walked in, she said, Pastor, God could never forgive me. And I said, why? Uh, why? Why would God not forgive you? And she said, because I've harmed my temple. That's exactly the word she used which told me she had some kind of religious background. I said, let me get me straight. You think that what you did in harming your temple was wrong? She said, yes, sir. I said, do you think it was was sinful? She said, yes, sir. I said, I'm going to ask you another question. I don't mean to be insensitive. I said, but I have a point here. I said, do you believe yourself to be a sinner? She said, yes, sir. I said, okay, I'm going to ask you one more question. Do you believe you're ungodly? And she was kind of confused that I was asking this question, but she said, yes, sir. I said, congratulations, you are qualified to be saved. 
Because the Apostle Paul says, Romans 4 or 5, he justifies the ungodly. Those are the only ones he justifies. He saves those who recognize they are sinners and they cannot attain favor with God by their works of obedience. And verse 3 shows us why this is true. Verse 3, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He's already made this point in chapter 3, verse 10. But if you determine I'm going to seek to earn God's favor by obedience to the law, you are basically saying that I've got to keep the whole law and I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, inwardly and outwardly, every day of my life. And Paul has already argued that total obedience to the law from those who wanted life by keeping it is impossible. It's something no sinner can do. Chapter 3, verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But it was also something God never intended to do by the law. Chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So why did God give us the law? He gave us the law. He gave Israel the law to show them they needed a Savior. Indeed, chapter 3, verse 22, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Jesus came, and for the first time in the history of the world, and the first time since, and the only time since, he obeyed the law. And then the sanctions for lawbreaking were poured out on him. That was the purpose of the law. And this is so important to understand that Paul gives us an inspired threat in verse 4. You are severed from Christ. That's a warning. You who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, we could spend a lot of time on this, but Paul isn't saying that the Galatians have definitively done that. In fact, if you look in verse 10, we're not looking at verse 10 today, but I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. I will take, he said, I am confidence, confident that you're not going to take this view. In other words, what we see here in verse 4 is a warning. And it's a warning for believers. And true believers will heed the warning as a means of persevering in the gospel. It's just like a road sign that says steep incline or steep or sharp turn ahead. Uh, the, the driver reads that and that, that sign keeps the driver from driving off the road. Okay? So Paul uses these warnings with believers not because believers can lose their salvation, but these inspired warnings are means by which the believer perseveres in the faith. Indeed, uh, John will say that in 1 John 2.19, that those who move away from the faith never were in the faith. 1 John 2 verse 19. Indeed, evidences that, that we have truly been justified is perseverance in the faith by heeding the warnings. But I want you to note as well in verse 5, 
by the work of the Spirit in our lives. And that brings us to the second part of our passage that we will move quickly through. We have freedom from the triple slavery of sin, death, and the devil. But in the last part of the passage, we have freedom for the triple virtues of faith, hope, and love. Look with me in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And so in contrast with the vain hope of righteousness by works and legal works, true believers are enabled by the third person of the Trinity, the omnipotent Holy Spirit, through faith, to wait confidently for the hope of righteousness. So what is this hope of righteousness? It is the hope, the very real hope, of a favorable verdict in the day of judgment. For believers who who have been indwelt by the Spirit, and every believer has been indwelt, such a verdict is assured in advance by the present verdict of justified by faith and by the internal witness of the Spirit and by the fruit of the Spirit that we see in verse 6. Look with me in verse 6, a very important verse. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, which bears the fruit of love. You see, it would be easy to misunderstand Paul and say, well, if you're, you're saying we're saved by faith, then we can do anything we want to do. Um, Because we now have Jesus as our fire insurance. That's not what Paul is saying at all. He is very careful to, to avoid that impression that many Southern Baptists believe. I can say that because I grew up in that tradition. That you can do anything you want to do and you have eternal security. The Christian life is not only a life of faith. It's a life in the Spirit. It's a life generated by the Spirit of Christ. And by that Spirit who indwells us, we bear the fruit of good works of love. Now what's interesting, where he says here in verse 6, I want you to show you something that you'll find very interesting. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Paul says that in two other places in the New Testament. The second place he says it is... Over in chapter 6, verse 15, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's interesting, isn't it? What he's saying is outward, outward external conformity does not change your heart. You can go to church till the cows come home. You can sing in the choir. You can even teach Sunday school. You can preach in the pulpit. Outward conformity does not change your heart. He says it counts for nothing whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. In fact, the construction here in the original language, you could say uncircumcision or circumcision count for nothing, but new creation counts for everything. And in our present passage, he says faith working through love. And then in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, he uses that same language and says, but keeping the commandments of God. Isn't that interesting? 
So how do those three verses work together? Circumcision or uncircumcision count for anything, but faith working through love is everything. New creation is everything. Keeping the commandments of God is everything. They work together in this way. When you, by the regenerating work of the Spirit and through conversion to Christ, are united to Christ, you are made a new creation. You can't be made unnew. You are new creation for all eternity at that point. And in that new creation state, you begin to bear the fruit of faith working through love. It's the evidence. It's the fruit on the tree. An apple doesn't make an apple tree. An apple pr proves it's an apple tree. Okay? So faith working through love proves that you are a new creation. And faith working through love obeys the commandments of God. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, it's not obedience that saves you, contra the Judaizers. It's obedience that proves that you have been saved. Obey obedience to God's commands is the result of faith, which is the result of a new creation. And that is true freedom. That is true freedom. A freedom from the curse of the law and freedom now to obey God. Not out of compulsion, not out of the thought that you can somehow earn favor with him, but out of gratitude and love. Let me close with this anecdote to help you distinguish between works base, like the Judaizers, and grace-based salvation. It was a, an anecdote that Spurgeon would often tell. And he said there was a man in London who was a peasant farmer, but he loved the king. And the reason he loved the king was because the king was just, the king was fair, the king was gracious, he was benevolent, he was kind, he was trustworthy. And so one day, this... Um, this peasant got a hearing before the king, and he wanted to bless the king, but the only thing he had was a carrot he had grown in his garden. It was the largest carrot he'd ever grown, and he wanted to bless the king with this carrot. And so he comes to the king, and with this carrot, he says, King, you are just, you are righteous, you are good, and you are a benevolent king. I want to bless you, and I want to bless you with this carrot. Well, the king discerned this peasant's love and gratitude. And he says to the, to, the, to the peasant, you know, you have been really faithful with a small plot of land. I want to give you five acres. Well, there was a nobleman over, overhearing this conversation. A nobleman who believed that the king could be bought. And he says to himself, this man got five acres for a carrot. What could I get for a prize-winning horse? And so he brings his horse to the king, and the king yawns and says, thank you. The nobleman, in his legality, got really frustrated. And the king knew that he was frustrated. And the king said this to the, to the nobleman. Do you know the difference between you and the peasant? The peasant was giving the carrot to the king. You were giving the horse to yourself. Do you see the point? Legal religion is essentially self-serving. It is not 
motivated by faith, hope, and love. But the freedom that Jesus has secured for every believer, for every single one of us here today, by his life, his death, his resurrection, has made us new creations. And now, out of faith working through love, we bring our carrots to the king daily in gratitude and love for what he has secured for us in Jesus. That's what we celebrate, not just on the July 4th weekends. We celebrate that every day of our lives. But it's also a celebration that those of you who are not yet in Christ can have. And so as Adam and as our musicians come forward, I want to offer you a glorious, glorious offer. The Bible says, just like I told that young girl who tried to harm herself, the Bible says that this gospel offer is only for sinners. It's only for sinners. And so if you're a sinner today, if you recognize you are broken, you are sin-stained, you've made a mess of your life, you've made a mess of your family, you're qualified for this gospel. Jesus came to die for sinners. And if you will trust in him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. And so as we stand and as we sing, won't you come and respond? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.